This morning, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2, looking at verses 9 and 10 together, as really just as the anchor text to give us this big principle, this big truth that helps us understand who we are. The last few weeks, specifically the last four weeks, we've been talking about who we are in relationship to God. So not just individually, but corporately, we've been talking about all of these incredible things. And when you look into 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, you see this. That one of the things that we talked about the very first week in our series is this. We're a people for God's possession. We're a people of his possession. We belong to him. We are his. Over the last four weeks, we've explored what it means to be people who know their identity. Who we are in relationship to God. Beginning today and over the next few weeks, we're going to look at who we are in relationship to one another. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, we get this picture that we are God's people. That we are God's people. I want to start this morning as we kind of launch into that idea and see how the text of Scripture tells us who we are by sharing with you just like a quick little story about my life. Um, I had a buddy that, that came over and watched uh, some football with me, spent some time with me, hung out with me, uh, and he came to our door, and, you know, like, we got a lot of people in and out of this place, and so the door's unlocked, kind of a lot of times. The door was unlocked. And so my buddy comes in, and my daughter asks him this really powerful question. She said, why are you here? Why are you here? And look, for a six-year-old, when... An adult male walks in the house with a valid question. Why are you here? Um, didn't prep her, didn't let her know, but, but, but my buddy just came over to hang and spend some time while we, we, watched a, we watched a game together. Most people, if you ask why they are doing what they're doing, they can give you a pretty confident answer. But I want to ask you this morning, that same silly question my daughter asked, why are you here? Why are you here this morning? Now, I bet there are some of us who would sit in this room and say, I mean, we've all got a pretty similar answer to that question, right? Like, that's, that's largely intuitive. We get why we're here. We're here to worship, and we're here to glorify God. But I bet if we went around this room, there'd be people that would share different aspects and different facets of that, and perhaps even things that maybe aren't the reason God wants you to be here. I want to share with you some data from this giant study that was done. There's, there's this group of, of people, this organization called the Pew Research Center, and they really collect tons of data on religious organizations and, and really religiosity in America, spirituality in America in this present day. Years ago, they conducted, recently, in the year, recent few years, they conducted a study surrounding why people went to church, like why they were there. People just like you and me that may even be sitting in this seat wondering this morning, Wait, why am I here? And I want to share with you the things that made the top of the list that people shared about why they came to church. Number one was to become closer to God. Number two, so that children will have moral foundation. Number three, to make me a better person. Now, a couple of these have some merit, although they're all a little bit theologically flawed, and that's a whole other sermon. I don't want to go there yet today. But 
You want to know what was really far down the list? This, that people would say, I come to church to be a part of the community of faith. Way down the list. And that makes sense to a large degree because we're, in the West, in America, in our culture, we're a pretty individualistic world. We do these things for ourselves. We don't really live like people particularly in antiquity and biblical times, live in this way where there's this deep, rich sense and fabric of community that comprised all of life. Like, take for instance, like there's stuff that we do where we do things with people, but we don't want to be with people. You ever been to an airport? Yeah, me too. A lot of people at the airport. Are you there to see people at the airport? Me neither. You're there to get on that flight and go to where you are going to go, right? I don't even like to buy groceries anymore. And I, listen, I, I'm a person that's outgoing. I like to talk to people. I, li- I like people in general for the most part. Like I just Sometimes you just want to exchange money for a good or a service and not give out your email address, right? You just want to buy the thing and then you want to get in the car and go back to where you came from. There are things that we do as individuals. But one of the most concerning things I think about where we are, and I don't just mean Double Up Community Church Chelsea, I do, but also the church at large, is that so often we treat corporate worship and what we do on Sundays in the same way. We're coming here maybe with some of these reasons to get closer to God or to build a moral foundation or to to be a better person. None of which is the chief reason that you and I should should be here, truly. What does the scripture say about this? Why do we do this thing where we gather together on Sunday mornings? Well, it's because we are God's people. Today we're going to look at three unique facets of the fact that we are God's people as we read 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 and then look at some verses from Genesis, from Hebrews, 1 Corinthians and Colossians. Here are the three things we're going to see as we study the text this morning. Number one, we are created for community. We're not meant to just live these individual lives where you and I do things for ourselves by ourselves. Second, we are meant to gather together. What we do on Sunday mornings is not just tradition, and it's not just to make sure mama's happy. It's not just to be a good person. Far from it. We are meant to gather together for very specific means that the scriptures describe to us. Third and finally, we are in need of one another. We live in a world that, that, that prides itself on self-sufficiency. And us being at a place where I can do all the things that I need to do, I don't have to ask anybody for help. It's a badge of pride and honor if I can handle everything on my own. And yet, the God who created you and me shows to us, reveals us, and has designed us to live in such a way where we are dependent upon one another. So this is who we are in relationship to one another. We are God's people that are created for community, meant to gather together, and in need of one another. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, and read this together, and then we'll dive into these specifically. 
1 Peter chapter 2, beginning of verse 9, says this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord to which we say together. Thanks be to God. One of the amazing things about this passage in 1 Peter is is that as Peter writes, and he's writing to this group of churches, and he presents this really profound theology of who Jesus is as the cornerstone and who those who trust in him are now, in so many ways, there's this giant shift to where people like you and me, people that are Gentiles, anyone who believes and trusts in Jesus for salvation is no longer searching out atonement through a priest in an Old Testament way, but instead we're a priesthood. We're this group of people that can now go directly to God, who can pray to the Lord, who can ask the Lord to bless and heal and forgive amongst the many other things. We're a group of people that now has this profound identity, this, this royal priesthood, this nation of believers. And when Peter tells these Christians, this group of Christians and churches that are in Asia Minor, when he says this, he does something really intentional. He says, you once were not a people, now you are a people. Now, it's pretty obvious that he's writing to a group of people, and so many of the New Testament epistles are. There are portions, perhaps, that are written to an individual, but usually they're written to a large group of people, a church, or a group of churches, or maybe elders or or deacons who are at churches. But in this instance, Peter is writing, and he is writing to a collective group of individuals, but he notice he doesn't say that each one of you is a priest. No, he describes, he doesn't say each one of you is a person in relationship with God. He describes the Christian life as one in which we are collectively bound together, and the identity marker for ourselves is not this hyper-individual thing, but instead it's a collective thing. You are now God's people. You're now God's people. You're not just one of God's people. And also there are other people that God has too. No, instead, you are part of God's people. This is huge. This is an identity marker for the Christian like you and me. and helps us understand these three specific things that really go back to Genesis. Number one, as part of God's people, we are created for community. We're created for community. Look into Genesis chapter 2, specifically verses 15 through 18, and you see this. The Lord God took the man and put him, this is Adam he speaks of, in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, one of the unique things that's happening in this moment with this, this picture that we're giving as it's recorded that, that Adam is placed in the garden and God is, is, is speaking and stating what his nature is and what he's going to do. There's all of this language that's preceded it throughout all of creation. God is speaking things into creation and things are happening and everything that God does, there's a result. It's described in this way. It's called Good. Everything is good. 
this is good and that's good. And sometimes we're just like, all right, is there any other adjectives? Is there a better way to describe this, right? Because it's just good, it's good, it's good, it's good. But it's more than that. It's perfect. It's beautiful. It's wonderful beyond anything we can imagine. It's not tainted or marred or broken in any way by saying everything is perfect. Adam, at this point, is in harmony, in, in relationship with God. But notice what God says. It is not good that the man should be alone. So the design that God has, the plan in his providential creation moment, God designs and says, hey, I want to give someone to this man so that he's not alone. You see, at the very moment of creation, God gives Adam community. Here's what we need to notice He doesn't mention that he gets this helper because he can't get all the work done. Look back into verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. But that word helper that we find in verse 18 doesn't mean just helping someone accomplish tasks or getting a vocational job completed. Instead, that word helper is akin to someone who is a true companion. This is relationship language, not work language. God is saying that for Adam to thrive and to be all that he has created him to be, he must live in community. It's about relationship and fellowship. Then look back into Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, and see this, words that you're likely very familiar with. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. I used to wonder when I would read this passage, and I would read verse 26, and it's like, well, hold on, there's like a misprint here. It says, let us make man. And then it gets plural again, in our image. What's happening in that moment? God's providential design and his work in creation is such That he is helping us understand who's present at creation. And it's him. And therefore, it's all three persons of God. It's the Father. It's the Son. It's the Spirit. We were made for community. Why? Because we are image bearers of the one who is himself a loving communion with three co-equal persons. So when we're in community with one another, when we experience the life-giving moment of having a relationship with someone, you know what we're doing in that moment? We are emulating the very God who created us in his image because now we have this relation. And listen, I get that it's, it's not perfect. It's broken. We're broken and in deep need of God. But yet that, that relationship, those relationships that you and I have, they glorify God because they emulate the communion of the Trinity, of Father, Son, and Spirit, the Godhead. Though it's imperfect, our friendships and relationships and the community that we have expresses the way that we're meant to live. So number one, we're created for community. Number two, we are meant to gather together. We're meant to gather together. What we do on Sunday mornings and the way the church gathers collectively as a body, this is not just something that's tradition or we should kind of sort of keep it up because we got a good thing going. 
This is the way God longs for you and I to relate to one another. I want to read this passage to you. It's Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. And it says this, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, the writer of Hebrews is writing to a group of people, a group of Christians, who, who is, they're, they're ultimately really struggling with gathering together, and there's a couple of reasons. Number one, the oppression and the persecution they're facing. Sometimes it could be violent, but in this scenario, the author of Hebrews, he's writing to a group of people that is like First Peter, or like the folks that Peter's writing to in First Peter, that are just struggling with kind of the societal oppression and persecution that's come from the Roman world in which they live. They're being hard-pressed at every angle to dismiss and do away with any loyalty that is not to the emperor and the empire. So, so Romans and those who were a part of that culture in deep ways were, were pushing against Christians not to be loyal to church, not to follow along with the practices of showing devotion to God above and beyond and instead of the emperor. So there's this group of people that are struggling to gather and meet together and the writer of Hebrews says, I mean, truly, genuinely, this has to happen. We have to do this. Why? In order to live as you and I have been called to, to stir one another up to love and good works. And think about love supreme. Think about what happens in John's gospel. And Jesus says this, there's a new commandment that I give to you. That you what? You love one another. How? What does it look like? As I have loved you. So if you and I are going to follow through with the new commandment, the commandment that Jesus has given us to love one another, there's got to be a context for that. There's got to be a place in which that takes place. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, this is it. It's in the gathering. It's in the being together as a body of Christ. This is how we stir one another up to love and good works. Can we do it in other places? Absolutely. Should it be primarily done in other places only except for the church? I would argue no, not at all. The church is the context. We are the body. We are connected to one another in Jesus and therefore empowered to love him and push one another, encourage one another toward love in Christ. I'll use this analogy, and of course, no analogy is perfect, but I heard uh, the, a minister one time describe it in this way. There was someone that came to him and just said, look, here's the deal. I love Jesus. I just don't love church. Some of it is like, it, it's just not super convenient. Like it's smack dab in, the, dab in the middle of the weekend, and I've got stuff going on, you know, and, and there's obligations all throughout the week, and that's my weekend, and I want to spend time together. So why can't I spend time with God kind of separately or differently than being a part of a church service on Sunday morning? Also, just church is weird. He's like, there's weird people, and they do weird stuff, and they say weird stuff, and I, I you know, I don't, I'm, I just don't know that I really like. I don't know it's my thing. I don't know that I really connect in that way. And the minister asked him and said, Hey, well. Are you married? And the guy said, yeah, I'm married. Like, like well, you know, what, what sense does that make? He's like, you're asking me if you can be a Christian and not go to church. Is that what you're asking me? And the guy's like, yeah, absolutely. That's what I'm asking you. And he says, well, 
Can you be married but just like never go home? Never see your spouse? Never spend time with them? Never be connected to them in any actual, real, tangible way? The piece of paper says you're married, but you're not a part of a marriage. Does that make sense? Like, like, like you and I can, can trust in Jesus, but you got to understand that he's called us to be a part of gathering together, to experience the relationship we have in him, not just as individuals, but together. Look, Sunday matters. We don't do this just for the sake of tradition. We do it because God tells us that this is where we experience love and we trans- or we're transformed. We push one another, we encourage one another into good works and loving others as Christ has loved us. This is the avenue, this is the means, this is the place, this is the body through which that is accomplished. Third and finally, not only we're creative for community, not only are we meant to gather together, but we are in need of one another. I want to read to you 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 through 7. It says this. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And hang on to that. Remember that word good that's there. What Paul's doing as he writes to the church in Corinth, particularly in this portion of 1 Corinthians, he's addressing some of the challenges that they're facing. One of the main challenges they're facing is that there are all these kind of contentious groups that were arguing with one another and fighting with one another in the church. There were actually these factions that were, that were developing and kind of occurring where people would say, well, look, I, I'm, I've got the gift of speaking in tongues, so I am more important than that person who just has the gift of of mercy or that person who has the gift of hospitality. There's this hierarchy that's beginning to form in the Corinthian church and there are these who regard themselves in a way in which it's much higher than they ought to and they're looking down on others. Consequently, you've got people who feel like they're inferior and are not really a part of the church to the degree that others are because they don't wield the same level of of power or influence or things of that nature. What Paul is doing is he's saying, you don't get it. And because you don't get it, I'm going to give you an analogy. I'm going to give you a picture, but more than an analogy or a metaphor, it's actually a reality about how life as the church works. And he goes on in 1 Corinthians 12 to use this big passage to describe the body, right? How there's one body and each of us are members of it. And Christ is the head. And just as we wouldn't call a finger more important than a toe, likewise, he instructs and he says, look, everybody's been given a gift. This is verse 7. Everybody's been given a gift of the Spirit for the common good. When you trusted in Christ Jesus, you were indwelled with the Holy Spirit and you were given a spiritual gift. And there's a purpose behind that gift. It's for the common good. It is no small coincidence that that word good is the same word that's used back in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 at creation. This goodness that Paul's describing in 1 Corinthians 12 when he says you've been given a gift of the Spirit for the common good, it's actually a picture of what the restored humanity is meant to look like. Living in this way where the Spirit of God is working in and through and amongst one another in this way that's beautiful. And there's actual real community that we were created for. And there's this interdependence. So I'm dependent on God and you and you're dependent on God and me. Do you know why? Because I don't have every spiritual gift. 
and you don't either. So here's the thing. I need you, and you need me. Like, I get that, and, and so, like, some of the American way thinks that, like, I'm, like, the holiest person in here today because I'm, I'm the one preaching, right? Well, it's garbage, and it's foolish. I am following Christ just as you are. I'm uniquely called by God to do this one particular thing, but every time I walk in these doors on Sunday, you minister to me with gifts that I don't have. You minister to me with mercy. You minister to me with wisdom. You minister to me with hospitality. You minister to me in these incredible ways. I'm dependent upon you. And here's the reality. You're dependent upon me, and we're all dependent upon each other. The Spirit is working through us. We all desperately need one another. I want to share one profound yet simple truth with you. When you're not here, we miss you. When you're not at church, with the church, we miss you. Here's what that doesn't mean. I don't mean it in like just this like sentimental way, like, oh, we miss you. I, mean, I, I probably mean it that way, too. But I mean it more in this way. Like, we miss your gift. We miss what God has uniquely done in you to encourage us, to convict us. To share with us, to exhort us, all of the different things that, that God has given you. We miss you. We miss the Spirit of God working through you. So man, be here and be a part of the church. Second, when you're not here, you miss us. And you might be on vacation, or you might be at a ballgame, or you might be doing something, and I get it, and that, that's, that's life for sure. But when you're not here, you miss us. Because you miss the opportunity for us to allow the Spirit of God to work through us in the gifting that He's gifted us uniquely with to minister to you. So, so what does all this mean? Three big things. One, we live in a world where the data says that regular church attendance is now described as people that come 1.6 times a month. I don't know how you get to 0.6. I've seen some people get up and go to the bathroom at a relatively early time in the service and not come back, and maybe that's how they're counting this. But look, it's not just like when I grew up, regular church attendance was, I don't know, every week, because that's what regular means. But here's what I would encourage you to do. Gather with the church. Make this a priority. Make Like, like husbands and fathers and men, lead your families and say, no, we're going to be at church. We're going to be a part of going to church. Do that. Say, so this is not like, well, if like we want to be a better person. And if we're, no, 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 no. God has called you to be here. So come and be a part. Gather with the church. Second, experience community within the church. And that means we want you to be a part of a community group. This isn't just extra for people that are marginally a little more holy. This is just another hour so people can get some sort of like spiritual points. This is a time where people connect with one another, gather around the scriptures, hear from the word of God, and come to know one another in a deeper way. It's a place where people rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. There are real dynamic relationships that are happening, the kind of relationships that you were created for. Man, experience community in the church. If you want help with that, man, come find me. Come find Drew, come find Brian, come find Ben, any of us, and, and, and come up to us and say, hey, man, I want help. I want, I, want to, I want to know what it's like to be in community. We'll fix it for you. We'll help you figure it out. Third, and, and, and this is really, really important, man, use your gift for the common good of the church. That's why God spiritually 
blessed you. Do you know that probably we've, we've made a mistake here? We've made a mistake as a church, and I want to share it with you, okay? We've asked you to just volunteer for stuff as if you're just like a warm body, okay? You know what, you know what my job is? Like, really, and this is something I'm telling you like with vulnerability that I have to grow in, and I'm trying to do this as I meet with you and talk with you and have conversations with you, and I hear from your community group leader if you're in a group with them, but I, I want to tell you quite honestly, like my job is not to recruit you or encourage you to volunteer to something. My job is to, to help discover what your spiritual gift is and help you go use that gift. And that's why I want you to like, take the sheet of paper that's on the tabletop out there and open your camera and use the QR code and find one of these things. Because look, as you're discovering what your gift is, I'm just telling you, there are places to exercise the gift of hospitality, of leadership, of wisdom in preschool ministry and in children's ministry and in student ministry and, and in, our, in all kinds of other ministries. I'm telling you to do this not because I think you should, not because we'll like be a more well-oiled machine and we'll work better. No, because God has called you to do this. This is not, this is not Michael asking you to do it. Like This is the Lord asking you to do this. He's telling you, I've given you a gift. Go use it. You were blessed to be a blessing. Now go do that. And you could do that here. And I want to come alongside you to help you discover. You might have questions. You might even want to come up after the service and say, Hey, man, how do I find my spiritual gift? That's another sermon. Y'all don't want that right now. But we'll, we can talk about it. We can talk about it. Man, please. Can we be the people that, that gather with one another? We experience real community here. And we're people who use our gifts for the sake of the common good. That good that reflects the community that we were created for. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand, and we're going to pray together before we take the opportunity to come and celebrate communion. So I am going to ask those that are serving communion uh, to come up. Paxton, uh, if you come serve one table, and Drew, come serve one table. And let's take the opportunity, uh, along with deacons, uh, to, to serve communion. Look, I, I can't think of a better way to approach the table than with this thought in mind. Man, we're God's people. I bet for some measure of your life, if you've been to church any amount of time, you've come to this table and you've probably walked to this table confessing sin and you confessed a bunch of sin and it's been all about you and then you took the bread and the cup and then you asked God to forgive you and you spent the rest of your time in church trying not to sin in the chair you sat in before you left. Anybody identify with that? Yeah. Nine o'clock did a lot more, so you guys must be holier. Um, but look, I want to tell you what this table is about. When Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper and when Paul says, this is what we're doing, we're taking this meal together, it's a communal meal. It's not this individual thing where people came and were somber and were sad and confessed sins and, 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 talked and told the Lord about every dark thing that they had done this week and walked away hoping they wouldn't do dark things again before they came to this table next week, right? No. This table was a meal where people celebrated this profound reality. That Christ has died, that Christ has risen, and that Christ will come again. And they did it together. So I don't know what your tradition is or, or, or what it's looked like for you before, but this morning I'm going to ask you to do two things when you come to this table. I want you to come with somebody, not by yourself. Even if it's somebody you don't know, just come along and stand alongside them. And when you're standing in line, talk to them. Say, hey, it's allowed. 
it's allowed. We, we, we first started doing this, I know you thought it wasn't allowed. And you were worried about me getting struck by lightning. And I know it, and that's okay. <laughs> but it's allowed. And it's to be rejoiced and celebrated. And talk together, get to know one another, and come to this table in celebration of what Christ has not only done for you, but for all of us. Because together, we are God's people. We're God's people. The last thing. This is not just some ritual that we do. It's not a rote thing. It's an expression of our belief. It is a confession of our faith when we come to this table because we are confessing that we believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for our salvation by grace alone through faith alone. So this is not just us eating a small piece of bread and, and drinking a cup of juice. I want to tell you, if, if, you are, if you are a believer, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, you don't have to be a member of this church. You can come to this table this morning. We invite you to come to this table. You should come to this table. But if you have not yet trusted in Christ, don't come and, and take a part of something that is not a ritual, but that's actually a confession of faith. Instead, I would ask you to confess your faith for the very first time, that where you sit, you would confess to God, Lord, I'm a sinner. I'm in need of you. I believe in who Jesus is and what he's done for my salvation. I trust you and I want you to rescue me and save me and make me one with you through your son, Jesus. Do that instead this morning, okay? If you will, bow your heads and stand. And let's take the opportunity to receive this good gift, not just individually, but together. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that once we were not a people, but you have made us a people through the life, death, and resurrection of your son, Jesus, you've drawn us unto yourself, and now you've indwelled us with the Spirit. God, would you make us people who, who don't just see these things that we ask in this morning, that we pray for, to be a part of our life as good ideas, but instead your commands that we would express love and reflect you by recognizing that we're created for community, that we are meant to gather together, and that we are meant, Father, truly, to live as those who need one another. Father, in this moment, we confess together that we are yours, that Christ has died, Christ has risen. And thanks be to you, Father, Christ will come again. We pray these things in his name. Amen. You come and taste and see that the Lord is good.